Welcome back to another episode of Somewhere Between, a podcast made by Asian adoptees for Asian adoptees. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another interview episode. I'm Ace, and today I'm joined by none other than Alia. Welcome, Alia. Hi. Feels weird kind of being on this side, but it's a nice, fun change. Are you excited about being on the receiving end of the questions? Kind of. I'm actually nervous because I'm usually on the interview side. So I'm like, ah, oh, I know exactly how everything's going to lay out and I know what my plan is. But today I'm handing over the reins and letting Ace take control. Thank you. I'm very excited about doing this. So for the listeners who maybe don't know you that well, could you please give like a brief introduction to who you are? Yeah, sure. So as you mentioned, my name is Alia. I was born in Xiaoyang, Hunan, China, and adopted at 18 months old. I grew up in New Jersey with a Chinese mother and Pakistani father. I have a brother who's also adopted. He's about eight years older than me. And funny enough, he was actually adopted from Pakistan. So it worked out where the men are Pakistani, the women are Chinese. And yeah, I'm currently just living in New York City and trying to find my way through life. <laughs> oh, that's nice. That's very interesting how your family is set up. I don't know if set up is the right thing, but the family dynamics that you have there. I definitely want to get into more of that. But I was just thinking before we get into that, I was interested because I've heard you talk a lot before about quotes that you like. So I've done some research and... <laughs> I've seen that one of your favorite ones is, I think it's Albert Einstein, and it's out of clutter, find simplicity, from discord, find harmony. In the middle of difficulty lies opportunity. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us more about why this quote? So I absolutely love that because I feel like that's a lot of what my experience in life has been, where most of my growth comes from those you know, chaotic, difficult moments where you kind of really have to look at yourself and say, okay, how am I going to get myself through this? Who do I have in my life to, you know, rely on? And what ways can I push myself to grow and learn from this? Because, you know, like anyone, we've all had our struggles. And for me, that always kind of started young in my family because my family had a lot of people with debilitating illnesses. So at a young age, I was taking care of my grandma and aunt. My grandma was on a ventilator. My aunt had diabetes and bipolar. They had their own issues and I was there through that all. And, you know, at a young age, I also witnessed both of their deaths firsthand. So I kind of decided to create this mindset of, you know, even though I was going through a lot of depression, trying to take that and not just let it crush me as it was and always take something as a learning experience. There's always something to gain even from the absolute worst moment. And whether you gain that in the moment and you, you know, find that peace in the chaos and, you know, you find that opportunity or it's afterwards when you're reflecting and you're like, oh, you know, I realized that made me grow this way. Or because of that, I have this personality trait that I'm now able to take on other things and something that, you know, would have been really hard and daunting before is now something manageable. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that you had to go through all that at such a young age that must have been difficult having to do these grown up things in a way when you were when you were so young and having to face mm -hmm. all these things. Yeah, I feel like having older parents kind of already sets you up to 
just be more mature for your age because you're just around older people and, you know, the scenarios that you'll have to face come sooner. Like I remember even in high school, my friends would be like, oh yeah, my parents are, you know, they're like 40s, 50s now. They're getting up there. And I'm like, oh, mine are 60. (laughs) And even just talking with friends and, you know, retirement or something like that, or even just having to face the idea of, you know, my family members, all of them are older and I'm just going to have to deal with not having them in my life sooner than, you know, some of my friends will. So it definitely like pushes you to grow and having an eight, a brother who's eight years older also kind of forces you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. So actually, I think maybe that's a good segue into some of the questions that I have. So as I just mentioned before, I think you have a very interesting family dynamics because as you just shared with us, you have a Pakistani father and a Chinese mother. So how was that growing up having two different cultures in a way? Yeah, I actually wrote my college essay on that. And that was, I think in another episode, I mentioned my squircle analogy where, you know, you're a square, you're a circle, you're kind of both, but you're trying to fit within the circle or square hole and it just doesn't work. And then you're growing up in a culture that is also a triangle. (laughs) So it doesn't fit either one of them. And it's a kind of a weird thing to balance because, you know, I do feel really grateful that I got to grow up with my birth culture in a way. But then because of the nature of where I grew up, a very white town, and I did get bullied for being Asian. I got the typical like ching chong and the slanty eye jokes. I got the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer treatment where they just didn't want to play with me. So I actually grew up really resenting that culture. And, you know, I started becoming a lot closer to my father's culture. So the Pakistani culture, I loved the clothing. It made me feel like a princess. I loved watching Bollywood movies. And it was always exciting when my family from Pakistan came over to visit. And it also worked with my family dynamic, too, because my mom grew up, you know, with Chinese culture and, you know, Chinese parents. So she's first gen American. So she has that similar personality where she's not the warmest person. So I love her. We have a great relationship now. But growing up, we definitely butted heads a lot. And it was very tough because I was a very lovable, like, I wanted hugs I, as a kid. I just wanted to show my affection and how I cared for people. But my mom, not much of a huggy person. She had that typical Asian trait of, I'll show you love through making sure you're fed. You have the clothes you need. You just have the resources and providing for you. So I found her actually very cold. And that kind of also worsened my adoption feelings because I was like, oh, my birth mother didn't want me. And my adoptive mother doesn't like me. So that was that was definitely interesting because I didn't really get close to Chinese culture and, you know, her until later, like I'd say high school, honestly. Yeah, because I guess also maybe, as you said also, that your brother was adopted from Pakistan, that then it kind of also shows up in a way there's two different teams almost that you have the, the Pakistani team and the... <laughs> the Chinese team, and and then maybe you don't feel as connected to the Chinese team, so to speak. So you're like, okay, I want to switch teams in a way. (laughs) Yeah, actually, that's exactly kind of what happened. We joke that my brother and I got swapped. 
So when he grew up, he had my grandmother around. So he was used to Chinese food, going over to take care of her and seeing her. So he grew up really Chinese and he got into like Kung Fu movies, all of that. And then me growing up, I didn't have my mom's grandparents around. They had both passed away by the time I came around. And then I actually, as I mentioned, like spent a lot of time with my father and with his mother and my aunt, you know, helping take care of them. So I kind of grew very close to my father and to that side of the family. So yeah, I guess we kind of did, we said like we switched teams as children. We were like somehow switched at birth or, you know, something happened. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a funny way to see it. Um, I think also with the thing that you said with, what was it called? The, the squircle? Was that correct? Yeah. The squircle. So I think then also having these three different identities in a way, yeah, I, I can totally understand that that makes it even more difficult because for me as an adoptee, adopted to Swedish white parents, you just have one point of reference because you live in Sweden where everyone is white and Swedish and then your parents are that. So then mm. you kind of, yeah, you have this one hole or whatever that you're trying to fit in. But then you have uh, the Pakistani and the Chinese and then America, like the melting pot. Yeah, that must be really tricky finding where do I fit in the most. And also if you have that feeling, maybe I don't really fit in perfectly anywhere. But you said that you got very close to your dad. So now do you feel that you have maybe uh, one identity, so to speak, is maybe difficult to give an answer to that. But do you have like a default? Yeah, I would definitely say as I've gotten older and even just the process of writing that college essay about my identity, I kind of came closer to what I truly feel like. And I've started to identify a lot more as, you know, being Chinese and saying like Chinese Pakistani American to kind of incorporate all of them and then kind of breaking it down of racially and culturally Chinese, culturally, religiously Pakistani, and then just a bad American. (laughs) Because I just remember talking to friends when I met them in college and they're like, you're not Americanized at all. Like I didn't really grow up with the typical movies with a whole sports family. So (laughs) definitely Americans like third on my list even though i live here and that was like my childhood yeah so did you have other you said you grew up like very white but did you have any other kids that were from any of the two different cultures sadly not really in my school we did actually have some diversity so that i was grateful for but most of that diversity included um you know people from south america the hispanic families and then We didn't really have that many African-American families at all, like very few. So I know their experience was really difficult in my school because at least for me, I did have some Asians, but the amount of Asians, I think in my grade, I, at most of the time I could count on two hands and in my grade in total, like once we got to middle school, high school would be about like 400 people. So out of 400 people, there was a very teeny, tiny, small population of us, but you know, we all knew each other because it was such a small population. And it was kind of funny because I felt like I should relate to them more because we're both Asian and, you know, maybe we've had similar experiences. But I actually didn't fall in line with any of the ethnic group cultures. I kind of took that same 
feeling of, you know, I don't really fit in anywhere. And somehow that just applied to my friend groups. <laughs> so I was always that floater, as my mom liked to call it, where I was never part of any one friend group. I just had friends in multiple groups. So I kind of balanced it with just trying to expose to everyone because that's where I always found myself the most comfortable, honestly. I don't like homogeneity where it's all one type of people or, you know, like one race, one culture, one, you know, maybe like singular group. I like when you have the mixture and I get to hear everyone's opinions, different sides, experiences. I've just grown up comfortable in mixture. Do you think that has something to do with your family structure? Oh, yeah, definitely. Because <laughs> whenever I was in a scenario where it was all one people, I never felt super comfortable. So going with family for like Chinese New Year and going to a Chinese restaurant for a banquet or something. Sometimes the waiter would be talking to me and I would just respond in English because I was never taught Cantonese. They did try to teach me Mandarin, didn't go too well. My mom and I couldn't practice, so never happened. <laughs> but they would speak Cantonese to me and I couldn't respond back. And then sometimes they would say things to my parents, oh, why didn't you teach her or what's wrong with her almost? And I would feel a lot of shame. Or on the flip side, I'd go with my father and my mom to like, you know, a wedding from that side of the family's friends and stuff. And I'd be dressed up in the Pakistani clothing called the linga was my favorite. It's basically a top and a skirt. It's so gorgeous. I love it so much. And I would feel really good. But then we'd get there and I'd be stared at in the room. And people would always ask me questions. It felt like the eyes were on you because, you know, I stand out. <laughs> Um, you don't see many Chinese people in those clothing in the room. Like we were always the only ones. And so in both scenarios, I always felt judged and, you know, solo. And I never liked standing out. I didn't like being center of attention for anything. I still don't, honestly. So I think that definitely pushed why I liked mixed areas because then there were multiple people and, you know, I wasn't the only one who was different. There was everyone different. And it's, natural and normal in those scenarios to be different yeah for sure so oh yeah i think maybe the feeling that you said that you stick out kind of in, in a negative way how was that fact that you and your mother were chinese how was that accepted by the pakistani side of the family and then vice versa from the other side of the family yeah my family were both sides were really amazing growing up. I never felt like an outsider at all by them. And I'm really grateful for that because my mom took the brunt of it, my mom and dad, because at the time that they got married, it was unheard of for, you know, a Pakistani guy to marry a Chinese girl or a Chinese girl to marry a Pakistani man. So they faced a lot of opposition trying to get married, parents saying no. My mom's parents actually didn't even show up to their wedding at all. So that put a huge strain and they had a lot of expectations. By the time I came around, you know, my mom had already gone through the point where there was the stereotype from my dad's side of adopting a child. So they didn't put that on me. And when I came around because I was a girl and, you know, I was just like a young baby, they really loved it. And my mom's side, I came around after my grandma had died. So for them, it was kind of like an uplifting thing. So I always felt very warm and safe there. And on my dad's side, they were just excited to see me. So they were always very warm and welcoming to me and never made it feel weird that I was different. But it's the external people who are like, 
this isn't normal. Who are you? What are you doing here? Yeah. Always these external people judging, looking at and like, oh, what's this on the inside? We don't like this. But I'm happy to hear yeah. that you, that they like welcomed you from the both sides. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely really, really grateful for that because I know in general, you know, not everyone's families are so nice. And then also, you know, being adopted to having that play in kind of heightens that feeling for some people. So Growing up, I didn't realize how special that was as much. But then as I got older and I started hearing other people's stories from friends and then from adoptees, I really come to appreciate, you know, having that family backing and being able to get that part of Asian culture where, you know, your family is your most important thing and you respect them and you like, no matter what happens, like your family is there for you. So I'm very thankful for that. Yeah, for sure. So do you have any? Now I'm going to sound very ignorant because I don't know a lot about those two different cultures, but it seems that maybe then you have a lot of traditions or celebrations that you celebrate throughout the year. Is that a correct assumption? Yeah. So it's kind of like I would tell my friends, I have multiple Christmases, basically. So I got lucky with both where, you know, my family kind of just celebrated a hodgepodge of things. My mom's side would celebrate Christmas just as an excuse to get together. So I had Christmas in December and then Chinese New Year comes around in like February, March time. And I had Chinese New Year. <laughs> and then because of how my birthday was, is around Easter. So they would just give me birthday gifts and Easter chocolate because I have a terrible sweet tooth. I am an animal. And then summertime comes around and it would be our first Eid. And so, you know, that was the one where you fast for 30 days and then at the end of it you know you kind of celebrate the prophet muhammad and just you know reflect upon your i guess fasting period and like connection with god i'm not the best at explaining this but that was another holiday so i'd get to see my dad's side at the end of that and during we would have dinners basically so where we'd meet each other and we'd all break the fast together so i got to see family a lot around the year then in fall time, we would have the second one where now you're celebrating the prophet Abraham. And that was our second Eid. And for our kids, Eid usually meant, you know, you get to see family. And sometimes you'd also get presents, Eidy gifts. So that was another Christmas. And then we come back around and it's Christmas time. <laughs> so very family filled year, which I think is why I'm so used to seeing my family. And even now in like COVID, it's so weird to think I haven't seen them in over a year like that never happens. Yeah, I can imagine that that's a very unusual and almost a natural thing in a way. But also then maybe with the family from different parts of the world, did you ever, even before the pandemic, did you connect online or something when you would have these celebrations somehow? Or was it always like you try to meet up if possible? Uh, it was always like we'd try to meet up if possible. And people from Pakistan would usually come over in summertime because they never want to be here in winter. <laughs> they would come over in summertime and, you know, they'd stay with actually my family my at my house. So we'd see them for like a few months and kind of get our yearly or like every other yearly time together. I will say, though, it's not always positive. <laughs> As with any family, there's always difficulties, but I would definitely say in my family, religion is actually a really big source of negativity. So that's definitely one of the odd things about growing up in this like mixed family is that, you know, my mom coming from Chinese culture didn't really have religion, but she did convert to marry my father. My brother, 
despite being Pakistani, also rejected religion really early. And, you know, me, I grew up with it. And because I grew up with close to my father, I tried to be more religious, but kind of grew out of that. And so that's why I kind of separate that now when I talk about my identity. And, you know, it is something that's so strong in my father's side that it is kind of a point of discomfort for me, honestly. Yeah, I can imagine. Definitely. So because this is interesting to me because I wasn't raised in any religious way. But seeing that your father is very religious and also just knowing that your mom converted for the relationship, how does that make you feel when you don't really feel super connected? It's definitely difficult because, you know, I love my parents and I try to respect my father's wishes. And so when he's around, you know, I'm very respectful of everything. But when he's not, I kind of just live my own life because it's the household I grew up in and the culture is a very restrictive culture. There are a lot of expectations on you from both sides, honestly, in different types. And so once I kind of got my freedom in college, I was able to really explore myself more and come to terms with, you know, I personally just don't feel comfortable in religion. And I've always been a very science geared person. So I feel comfortable when there are pieces of evidence, facts, there's research backing things up. So I've been open to the idea. And I'm if there is evidence one day that there's a God, I'm more than happy to like, oh, okay, well, now there is. I'll switch to religion, I guess. But at the moment, I just don't find any closeness with it. And it's just something I kind of avoid, honestly. For my partner and I, we actually have to do a lot of things religiously to comply with my family that I really don't want to do and feels very impersonal. And there's just a lot of judgment there. But I do them because I care for my father. So it's definitely, it's a hard aspect of our family. Yeah, I can imagine. Because also, obviously, you don't want to disrespect your father in any way. But at the same time, you want to be your own person and finding out what's right for you, what fits best for you. Yeah. And my father, bless him, he's such a good person. And he's always stated like how much he'll love me no matter what but definitely growing up and even now is hard because I know he means that but at the same time he just refuses to accept me for who I am where I am at now with my identity who I am as a person and he doesn't not see me as that little girl anymore so that's also kind of one of the push of why I decided to grow so close to my Chinese culture because I started really rejecting Muslim culture and just religion in general. So I was like, you know what? Let me go into my birth culture and see how that is. And I didn't feel that same judgment anymore. I didn't feel the same pressures. And so that's how I became super comfortable with it. And it just found a fit more. How did your mother take that? Was she happy? <laughs> um, She was kind of confused at first, actually. She was like, what's this sudden change? Like, that you want to know more about the food or like you have all these questions now but i think she could sense it like that mother's intuition or you know just like female to female i could confide in her more and you know growing up in america she also kind of understood more of what i was going through versus my father grew up in pakistan so you know he didn't understand what growing up here is like as much 
So that was definitely a difficulty and just growing closer to her and, you know, being able to talk to her about more things and feelings and connecting more to my culture definitely like opened up our relationship and my interest in things in general. So like learning even when we would go to the graveyard for my grandparents for um, something called Qingming and, you know, we bow three times and we would burn the money and stuff. I started asking more questions about that and like wanting to do more of that stuff to really feel what it's like to be a Chinese person. In a way also it must feel, I'm just realizing this now, that having parents with a strong culture or strong connection to the culture where you're adopted from as well, that must, because that is something that I can't really, I can't relate to that because as I mentioned, I was raised by Swedish parents. Mm. So can you tell me more, like elaborate on how that is having, having that opportunity? was honestly really nice because I didn't have to seek outside resources. There were some things that I did look for and just like do my own research on. But thankfully, most of the time I could just ask my mom, like, what is this? Why is this a thing? Or, oh, you know, I was walking through Chinatown the other day and I noticed this. What's this all about? Can you tell me? I'm really grateful for that because it kind of made my journey easier, honestly. And I think also my family in general, like I kind of got lucky where my grandma in China was actually adopted. Oh, Yeah. So my mom kind of grew up knowing more about adoption and like what the adoption experience is like, because she would tell me stories of when she went back with my grandma to China to visit their village. And my grandma actually knew her birth mother. So she would tell me stories of what that was like for my grandma and, you know, the emotional trouble she went through. So my mom not being a very emotional person that was one of the ways where she actually was able to emotionally support me because she could tell me, you know, this is normal or this is, I know this is a hard experience and like you might have certain feelings towards your birth mother. You might have anger towards her or, you know, you also need to think about these things because like in the case of grandma, this is what happened and this is why she had to get adopted. And that could be the same in your case. So that really helped me because I feel like my mom really prepared me for the world and my emotions, whether it be for adoption or even racially. My parents both from the start, they're like, you know, you're very different and it's going to be tough because my mom was like, you're female, so you're going to have to work harder. You're Asian, so you're going to have to work harder because your efforts will be diminished just because you're Asian. And my dad was like, because of religion, you're probably also going to face some difficulty with my name and just if I talk about my beliefs and why I can't do certain things like my friends can. So I am very grateful for that because I feel like that created a stronger basis. And that's why today I can talk so openly about my adoption and my experiences growing up. Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy to hear that you feel that now. So just a quick question. Your grandmother, was she a domestic adoptee inside China? Yep. Yeah. So it was from, I think, the one village over and her birth mother couldn't take care of her at the time. And there was just a whole financial thing and just family problem. So she actually gave my grandmother up, but then later kept a daughter that she had because it was only one village over. My grandmother's family knew who she came from and, you know, she was able to connect with her sister and her mother, but it was a very bad relationship from what I've heard. So 
being Chinese and growing up with a mother from China, but you're not biologically related. How did that come up then? Because since your grandmother was adopted, did they tell you very early? Because in your case, maybe it's not necessarily apparent if you look at your mother. I don't know what she looks like, but do you look alike or? We look nothing alike. <laughs> and she and I are from very different regions. Where she's from, she actually has pretty big eyes. Some people will think she's like from Southeast Asia or something. And they just never can pinpoint where she's from. So then with me also, they can't pinpoint it. And it'd always be funny when some people are like, oh, you really look like your mother. And I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. Sure. Where? <laughs> Face shape, build, everything. We're, we're pretty different. And for me, they did tell me from a young age, my mom and dad, they explained this to me as I got older too. They both decided once they adopted that they wanted to be very open and clear about it. So they didn't say like, hey, we're going to sit you down and you're adopted kid. They waited until I had a question. And for me, that question came up really early because my peers would point out, you're different. And I'm like, why am I different? Or it's such a weird thing, but I have this memory from when I was really young, like four or five. And my father took me back with him to Pakistan. And on the way back, when we came back in the country, since it was just me and him, they actually stopped us. And they thought my dad had child trafficked me. <laughs> Because we didn't look alike and, you know, it was a single parent traveling. But he had a letter, which is what you normally get from the other spouse saying, yeah, I'm okay that this person's taking my child alone. But that wasn't enough for them. So I remember being interrogated and they separated me from my father. And I have this distinct memory of them asking me, like, who is that man? And I was like, that's my dad, duh. So it's always been kind of funny for that. And actually, kind of a side tangent that reminds me. Another weird cultural thing is that I don't call my dad dad or father or anything. We call him Abu, which in Arabic just means father, you know? And that's just how we refer to him. So that's kind of become his name. And so I'll be around other people and I sometimes have to remind myself that. And I'll be like, oh yeah, Abu said this. Or like, oh, I was with Abu the other day. And they're like, what are you talking about? Who's that? Yeah, like Abu, the, the monkey from Aladdin. I'm like, no. no. <laughs> So yeah, it's it's definitely been funny when people try to piece together my family and they're like, oh, I don't really see like Pakistani in you. Where Where is that? Oh, the Chinese? Yeah. Oh, sure. You're, you have her eyes. Yeah. It's this thing because obviously like China, it's a very big country and all Asian. And then people like, if you're Asian, you're Chinese. But then it's like, no, Asia is, is much bigger. <laughs> yeah. It's that thing of like, we don't all look the same, guys. <laughs> we have differences. Yeah, for sure. But that's why I also thought it was interesting. I mean, you explained it because it was like when you were with your dad, other kids would tell you, oh, you're different. But I mean, how would they connect that you're different if you're like with your mother? Um, They didn't really as much. I think when I was with my mother, people would definitely be like, doesn't make sense. But they just wouldn't question it. They'd be like, she looks like her father, I guess, you know? And I did have friends who later on would ask me once we got more comfortable in our friendship. They're like, by the way, you don't look like your mom. What's up with that? So I got used to, you know, whenever I'd be somewhere and they'd see both my parents or with my mom, even if someone asked me or, you know, they'd ask me about like, oh, our family, our culture, background, blah, blah, blah. I just be like, oh yeah, I'm adopted. And my parents didn't like actually that I would open up with that because they were like, this is not any people's business. They don't need to know. That's not your story. Like you are our child. But I was like, it just saves me an explanation. It's easy. 
I'm adopted. Don't try to figure it out. <laughs> so then you were very connected already to being adopted. Yeah, it was something also made very clear to me because I think, I don't remember how this came about, but I think someone had asked me and I told them, and I had gotten a little bit of bullying for it. You were an unwanted kid or like, you know, even in middle school, someone was like, oh, you should have just died on the side of the road. And I'm like, yes, I should have, but I didn't. And I'm here to make your life hell. <laughs> It'd be people who were just very mean about it, honestly. And I just grew up with these quick quips against it where they'd be like, you were unwanted or, you know, you, you shouldn't be here. Go back. And I was like, well, you could have been a mistake. Like who said they wanted you? They just had to keep you. At least I was chosen. So I definitely like something that I, I like have a wall against almost. I feel so old, but I'm like, oh, these kids, why do they say this? Like, <laughs> they're so mean. Right? Kids are so terrible. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess then that kind of maybe leads into, in a way, because you said that you were connected to being adopted and that you didn't have any big issues with telling that or with sharing that. So have you always like been active in, in the adoption community or when did that start? Actually, I really wasn't at first. My mom did take me when I was eight or nine to an adoptee convention held by the company that facilitated my adoption, Hope's Children International or something like that. And I remember connecting with some people there that my mom had known from when they were, you know, we had both been adopted from the same orphanage, but I don't really remember a whole lot about that. And then later on in life, I was curious, I had questions, but I always figured, oh, those questions will be solved when I go back or I'll plan as I get older to visit and get my answers then. I didn't really think about finding a community of other adoptees. I did, however, in high school, one of the friend groups I became part of, I met someone else who was adopted and she kind of introduced me to more of the online groups and everything. She was actually the one who told me about subtle Asian adoptee traits a year and a half, two years ago now. And I was like, oh, this is interesting, but we never really talked about adoption. It wasn't until college when I was living here in New York City that my uncle, I think, had mentioned that there's adoptee groups in New York because one of my younger cousins is adopted from Taiwan. So he had mentioned that my cousin is trying to get her involved with stuff. And I was like, oh, okay. So I did a Facebook search and I found like China's Children International and I found FCCNY, Families with Children from China, New York. And I was kind of just like lurking on those pages. And, you know, I went to, I think, one meetup and I was like, oh, this is interesting. Like, I, I like this. But what really kind of got me on the train was when I saw a post in FCCNY and they're like, oh, we're having an Asian Pacific Women's Conference. Is there anyone who would like to speak about being, you know, in a transracial family or just talk about adoption? And I said to myself, I was like, you know what? People always ask me about this. This would be interesting to actually share my story with more people. And so I reached out to the person. I was like, hey, you know, I come from such and such family background. I'd love to speak at your conference. And so they put me on the panel for like the transracial Asian experience and then also just an adoptee one that they had. And I loved it. I loved getting to connect with other people and, you know, sharing my experience and hearing what questions they had for me of, oh, you know, my child's adopted and might face those same things. Like, do you have any advice? 
or meeting fellow adoptees and they're like, yes, that what you said, or like, you know, they said something that I really connected with and I felt explained some of the feelings and experiences I had. I was like, oh, I love this. This is really nice. I feel at home, like someone understands. And then I was keep on the page a bit. And my friend later recommended subtle Asian traits. And so I started looking up other subtle Asian things and I found subtle Asian adoptee traits, which was even more amazing because I was like, ah, those subtle Asian things didn't always fit for me either. And so I got into subtle Asian adoptee and that's what led me to the podcast. I'm still kind of a lurker on there where I like will occasionally comment on something or post or reach out to people. So not fully, fully in the community, but this is the podcast has really been my main way of connecting with people. Yeah, that's really cool. So now I have two questions, but okay, so let's take the first ones. Because I also, myself, I've started to become more active in the adoptee community recently. And it's also part of creating an offshoot of the subtle Asian adoptee traits group for Asian adoptees in Europe. So I think I can totally relate to what you shared that, that is really nice sharing your story and feeling that it helps other people to hear your story and, and maybe makes it more comfortable for them to share their story and feel a belonging in a way. Yeah. So I think that's really cool. Since then, have you been a speaker? Yeah, I was actually going to speak at the next conference they had, but COVID. (laughs) So that definitely changes things. And then also by that time, you know, the podcast had started up more. So then I was like, you know what, this will be the platform where I get to connect with people. And I'm kind of like a shy person as surprising as that may sound (laughs) so like the zoom calls i've been on like a few of them but sometimes for me like i feel a little daunting with so many people and especially since it's so established now that people know each other so well that's why i really like this format where i get to one-on-one talk with people or like you know in a small group we get to talk so i'm definitely trying to become part of more of that stuff like that so There's one that I keep missing because it's always at a time that I have something, but I really want to do, which was someone I interviewed. Her name is Mia, and she is the founder of Sisters of China. And so that one's kind of like a smaller community of adoptees who get together like once a month. So working towards getting the courage to do that one. Yeah, I've seen that one. It popped up a lot on my feed, and I think I've connected with her on Instagram as well. And I have many friends now that are also in that group. So yeah, I really hope, uh, I hope you can do that. So actually the second question I had, and that we, uh, we talked about now again, so that you feel that you can have a connection through this podcast. And that's how I, I mean, I mentioned that in the episode that I did earlier, because for me, this was really an introduction to the community, like listening to you guys, like all the episodes that you did before. And it was really helpful for me to hear your stories and the guests that you had on. It really, Mm -hmm. it made it feel like, oh, there are other people like me out there. So I think, I think this thing is really cool. And I'm also really happy to be part of this now. But for those and also for me who don't know, how did this actually start this podcast? So it's kind of a funny journey that we have where... It actually started before really anyone (laughs) knew about it. It was back in December of 2019, I think. My years are so thrown off thanks to COVID. But I think, yeah, back in like November, December of 2019, Maya put a post on subtle Asian adoptee traits of, hey, I'm thinking of, you know, starting up a podcast talking about the adoptee experience. Would anyone be interested? 
I saw that and it reminded me actually exactly of the other post where like, hey, anyone want to speak at the conference? And I was like, you know what? I really enjoyed that experience. Like that felt amazing to me. And I loved connecting with people that way. I'm going to put myself out there and like, yeah, I responded to Maya's thing. I was like, hey, I'd love to. And so Maya created a kind of Facebook chat group with me and maybe like nine or 10 other people. And we had our first call in January when everyone was on a pause from college and everything. And we were going to plan out like, oh, we came up with episode ideas, names, topics. And we're like, hey, okay, so like, here's what some roles might be. And then things kind of took a pause with college and then COVID started. So then later in February, in like March, really, Maya came back and she was like, so um, who's still interested, guys? And it was me and Amy who were like, yeah, we're still down. And so then we met up to try and really plan and, you know, make it actually happen. And so we spent like, the first time was like three hours just discussing the podcast and, you know, what we wanted to do and start planning the first episode. Then we spent another like two hour call (laughs) planning a script for the first episode, which ended up being only like six minutes. (laughs) We were so nervous and so unsure what we should do. And just talking about ourselves for the first time was so odd so we were like oh what do we want to say and like we had to write it out but yeah we put ourselves out there for the first time and we did that script and then it stuck we put it out there and we got some people who were interested in joining us for episodes and so you know kind of just took it off from there and have just been taking it as things go we've learned a lot along the way and really changed how we do the podcast but it's always so funny thinking back to that initial time where we had scripts for everything (laughs) And we're initially like, okay, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we say through the thing. And, you know, we have such and such guests on. We have to hit these questions. So if you ever go back to listen to our initial podcast, it's so much different. (laughs) And we had a different name, too. It was adopted or something. Yeah, for adoptee education kind of feel. But actually, I'm really glad we changed our name because I really like somewhere between. I feel like it's kind of almost funny. It fits when you're in a conversation and you're like, yeah, as an adoptee, I feel, you know, like somewhere between. I feel like it says so much in so few words. And that's all thanks to Maya. Maya's amazing at naming. She came up with the name, the logo. She's amazing with that. Yeah, I've really had that experience as well. I think it's really cool working with all of you. Yeah, so I think it's really fun to hear that, how it all came to be. And then if I understand it correctly, you had been a speaker at conferences and stuff before, but obviously podcasting is a bit different because there's also this technical and uh, the back office thing. And uh, like you said, with what Maya's doing with the logo and the naming and everything that's going on. But mm. did any one of you have any experience with this before or you were just trying things out? And- Absolutely none. <laughs> I actually, it's so funny. When we started a podcast, I've only listened to like a few podcasts, but I'm not a huge podcast listener. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, sure, we'll do that. I'll join with you guys. Amy had more experience of what she's heard in other podcasts and she had friends who kind of gave us feedback. And, you know, we reached out to a lot of people we knew first for feedback and guests and stuff. And then for me, my experience was in editing. So I've used the Audacity software before. So I knew like how to edit and like join together certain clips. That's, I think, why our calls were so long of figuring those details out, what we wanted to say, who we wanted to have on, how we were supposed to even do things, setting up those accounts, the email account, the, for us, Discord channel. Maya found the bot craig that we use to record and then maya and i working on how we want to edit things so we've learned a lot along the way even just back end like legal stuff you know for those who haven't been on this podcast we actually do have a podcast agreement form that we have people sign just as you know 
something that we just know is like a good safety precaution, especially since a lot of personal stories are being shared. So it's just a way of, you know, making sure guests are okay coming on. And then that also we have something to cover as well. There's all those little details no one tells you about. Yeah, definitely. Because when I first jumped on and I had the first interview and then was asked to join the team, I thought it was really, I'm like, oh, you have so many things down. There's this legal stuff and like how <laughs> the process, how you're doing everything. I'm like, oh, it's so professional. You must have been doing this for, for a very long time. Yeah. And then you saw the behind the scenes. <laughs> Ace is like, wait, this is chaos. <laughs> No, no, that's definitely haven't been my experience. Because I think what you've done is is so cool. Because I also think that you decided to do it and that you just yeah decided to just start it and see how it goes. That's kind of something that I totally agree with as well. Because it's in a way that you kind of okay, let's build this bridge while we're making the crossing. Because mm -hmm. I think also sometimes if you wait until like, oh, no, I'm not ready for this. We need to do more research or like it needs to be perfect before we launch something. Mm -hmm. Things are never perfect. So it hinders you or it makes it that you never really start. So I think it's, yeah, it's, it's just mm -hmm. good to like, okay, we're maybe not experts right now, but we'll get there and we just need to get things out and do it. And then, yeah, then we'll see where it goes. And it's been going really well. So yeah, congrats also to that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it was definitely a, a very nerve wracking thing, like putting yourself out there first and showing the lack of experience that we have, which also is why like now we're like, yeah, we're comfortable talking about it because now we, we have at least more of a process. And also we had that one call in January, but whenever we spoke, we actually just only spoke through voice on Discord. So we never really looked at each other until like three months in of recording. And then we're like, oh, we should do a video conference now. So now on all of our meetings, we do video, but <laughs> that was a definitely an experience. And I mean, same to you though, kudos for just starting the Subtle Asian Adoptee Europe group and, you know, being the push for those calls, the weekly calls that you do. Yeah, thank you. Because, you know, it's that idea of just taking action and seeing who comes up and just taking things as I go, like build your community. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. And we've been doing a lot of stuff this past month, and I'm really excited about what we have in plans going forward as well, because I like to dream big or like shoot for the, what's the saying, like shoot for the stars and you'll land on the moon or something like that. <laughs> So yeah, I, I'm really excited about that. And also with this podcast, I'm like, oh yeah, we can do really cool stuff here as well. So I'm, yeah, I'm super excited about all these things that, that are going on. Yeah, I love that. And you have like some really interesting ideas that none of us have thought of incorporating. So for any listeners, you don't know what's happening yet by the time this comes out, but we have some interesting stuff from Ace coming out. So I'm really excited to hear that. Yeah. So guys, stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. So I guess this is a good point to wrap things up. I think it has been very interesting, like hearing how you grew up and your family dynamics and how it originated for you and how that took you to where you are right now with the podcast and everything else. So yeah, before we go, is there anything else you'd like to share just from your story that you maybe thought about before, but you forget to mention or something? I Not really. Just, I guess, a message to, you know, people who are starting their adoptee story and exploring that or, you know, those who are already have been on the journey, just something that I have found along the way. It's so important to normalize our experiences and to be comfortable with your emotions 
are allowed. It's okay that you feel certain things about your adoptive family or your birth family. It's okay to feel that struggle, to have these difficulties, the confusion. And so often people are, are like, oh, you should be grateful for this, or you should be happy and feel lucky. And no one like ever validates our struggles. And I feel like that's so important because there is such a unique struggle to being adopted, you know, whether you're adopted into a family that like me, where I have someone from my birth culture, or you're adopted into a family where it's completely different. There are some distinct struggles that we go through that someone who is in their birth family will never have to face. And some of these are lifelong things that we carry with us. Like I know for me, I still carry those feelings of abandonment, hardcore, even things from the Child Welfare Institute that I was at, habits I still carry with me. Like apparently I would hide food when I was first adopted because I didn't know when I would get it next. And to this day, I still have those protective tendencies. And just no one ever tells you about that. And no one tells you that's normal and okay to have like sensitivity to certain things. And I just really wish there was more conversation around that so that we don't feel that guilt of why do I feel this way? Or is this normal? And so to anyone who's listening, your feelings are okay. They are normal. They are your feelings. You're allowed to have them. And, you know, there's always someone out there who wants to talk with you about them and can support you through that. And I just hope in the end, you know, we all find that comfort with our story and find a community to support us. That was beautifully put. Thank you so much. And thank you for sitting down with me today to have this conversation. Yeah, I really enjoyed talking with you, Ace, and I look forward to doing more episodes with you, but on the other side. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited too. Thank you very much. So to our listeners, thank you all for joining us today. If you're interested in participating in one of these episodes, email us at somewhere.between.podcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to join our Instagram family at somewherebetween.fam to stay connected with updates, casting calls, and more. See you guys next time. <laughs>